Hello, Earthlings. Earth Day, April 22nd, 2021, is soon to be upon us. It will mark the 61st anniversary of this most sacred and holy day, which means the prophets of environmental doom and gloom are going to be out in force this week, shaming, naming, and blaming you for breathing. Yes, that carbon dioxide that you are exhaling even now is destroying the environment around you. Your houseplants are probably dying from too much carbon dioxide, not because you're overwatering them. So feel the shame, feel the guilt. And if I were you, I would recommend not talking or breathing for the remainder of this episode, lest you cause more damage to the environment. Leave that yelling to the climate activists because they are yelling and fighting for a noble cause, unlike the well-being of commoners of you and I. Yes, we should, should be very afraid. So hold your breath, buckle up, because we are about to look at the climate prophecies that date all the way back to 1960, when the very first climate day was celebrated. To understand what danger you and I are truly in, because these prophecies, though long overdue, are about to come true just about any moment now. Really, just just wait for it. Hey, it's Lucas Grobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Grobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. Thanks for being with me on the show today. As I said, Earth Day is coming up, the most sacred holy holiday for the environmentalism cult of environmentalism. I don't know what they're calling themselves these days, but the prophets of doom and gloom are going to be out in full force this week. So I thought I'd give you some ammo to fight with. Before I talk about the ammo to fight with, I'm going to talk about my book, Anchored, The Discipline to Stop Drifting. I wrote this book in a time of my life where I was drifting. I was trying to figure out a new season of my life. And in that, I realized that all of my metrics all of my algorithms of success were just flat broken. So I wrote this book. It's a short 100-page book, short read, highly actionable. I think about the principles that I wrote in this book nearly every day. They have helped and freed me so much. I know that they will help and free you too. Now, back to the show. Why would I even care to waste my hot breath and my carbon dioxide on this topic of climate change. What does it have to do with anything? Well, in my the, my hundreds of discussions that I have had with millennials, with Generation Z, with, with Arabs, with people across Asia, the Middle East, Europe, North Africa, uh, the West in America, it is a plague. Generation Z and millennials are plagued with anxiety, nihilism, self-hatred for being alive because they have bought into this lie. They've bought into this narrative that the world is about to end and it is all their fault. I see creatives who are, are highly talented, who feel guilty and shamed that they are producing anything into the world because the, the when you hold on to this idea that Humanity is the virus. And that finally, because of the Rona in 2020, Earth can finally rest. Earth can finally rest from the virus of humanity. It's finally taking a break. When you, when you believe that, 
on on a, any sort of level, it, on a deep psychological level, it begins to inform the way that you think of yourself, the things that you believe about yourself. It's what we talk about on the show so often. Watch your thoughts because your thoughts create your feelings and your feelings create your actions. It's basic cognitive behavioral therapy. And the thoughts that we have adopted as a generation is saying, I, it would, the world would be better if I was not alive. I am just wasting everything that I do. Everything that I produce is just creating more waste more harm to poor old mother nature. And we are the virus. When you believe that, the only option, the only option of belief is nihilism, meaninglessness, purposelessness, because you know that any great thing that you do is harming and causing more pain to this world. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is not true. And that is why we are talking about it today. And so we're going to start with the top 10 predictions from 1960 of how bad the world was going to end. And guess what? These predictions have not stopped year after year after year. We hear how the sea level is going to rise by 20 feet and everything's going to be washed away. We hear how gas is going to be gone. We hear how fossil fuels are killing everyone. We hear it time and time again. The doomsday call of environmentalism. So back in May 2000, there was an article in Reason Magazine written by Ronald Bailey. The article was, was titled Earth Day Then and Now. And he laid out a number of doomsday prophecies from 1980. Mark Perry, I picked this up from his blog from the American Economic Institute. And I scraped some of them from there. And it's quite quite enlightening, quite humorsome, and quite scary if you believe in this sort of thing. So here are the top 10 most frightening prophecies of the doom and gloom of the earth and mother nature dating back from 1960. Number 10, from a Harvard biologist named George Wald, he estimated that civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against the problems facing mankind. Now, I'm going to bring this up right now because the first objection that you may be having if you are a climate denier denier, see how I did that? You're a climate denier denier. Uh, the first objection that you're going to have is, well, see, they made these warnings 60 years ago, and because we did something about it, we haven't faced all these catastrophic, horrible um, end-of-the-world scenarios. Well, if we look at this chart over here, uh, we see that in the year 1960, society was producing about 10,000 kilotons of CO2 a year. And if you fast forward, to 2020, you see that we're creating about 35,000 kilotons of CO2 per year as humanity. That is 3.5 times more than when these prophecies were made. So a lot of these prophecies are contingent upon if we continue down this path, if nothing is done, if we continue down this path, the world will end. 
the argument that I have seen made against these is, well, we did do something. You know, look at these legislations that were put in place in America, which, by the way, if you're in America, you are only 5% of the global population. Most of the world lives outside America. Glad we settled that point. So there's other nations in the world. There's other places in the world. And praise God, they didn't listen to these uh, these catastrophic um, prophecies and just hide away in caves and decide to shut down their power plants. But praise God, they actually decided to progress as a society. Now you might say, well, you know, if you look, you look at the the carbon per person, we're actually doing, maybe we're doing less. Well, no, that's not true. If you look at the numbers back in 1960, we had 0.003 metric tons per capita. And now in 2020, we're up to about 0.0045 metric tons per capita. And back in 1960, the population was about 4 billion people. Now we're pushing eight. So humanity has grown exponentially since 1960 and our carbon input has grown. The reason that I say this is because these two data points will undermine all of your objections, your objections of we did something, your objections of, well, we were, because of these prophecies, we we're able to change the course because we started to get wiser. Now, I am glad that maybe this stopped people from dumping chemicals in rivers and maybe stopped deforestation. I'm glad for these things, but it doesn't change the fact that these prophecies are all off and this whole thing, this whole thing that might be eating your lunch and definitely is eating probably some of your friends' lunches, stealing your lunch money, your milk money. Yeah, it's a sham. Here is number nine on the list. The day after the first Earth Day, the New York Times editorial page warned, man must stop pollution and conserve his resources, not merely to enhance existence, but to save the race from intolerable deterioration and possible extinction. Ah! <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad most of humanity did not listen to the New York Times. If you're still listening to CNN and the New York Times, well, find some more some different news sources. Uh, first off, this this is a, a totally fear-based recommendation and scenario back in the 60s and even today. Conserve our resources. It was actually the fact that we did not conserve our resources. It was the fact that humanity pressed on in their creativity and expended their resources to build and create new technology that we have the longest lifespan that we've probably ever seen in history, you know, dating pre-flood, depending on what you believe about the flood and what you believe about evolution. But it's true. In modern history, we have the longest lifespan right now because of technology, because of electricity. There's, there's never been more people out of poverty, even percentage-wise, across the globe than today. We live in extraordinary times. Here's number eight. Most of the people who are going to die in the greatest cataclysm in the history of man have already been born, wrote Paul Ehrlich in 1969 in his essay titled The Eco-Catastrophe. Quote, unquote, 
by 1975, some experts feel that food shortages will have escalated the present level of world hunger and starvation into famines of unbelievable proportions. Other experts, more optimistic, think that the ultimate food population co collision will not occur until the decade of the 1980s. 1980s, folks. We all should have died in a cataclysmic famine in the 1980s. Remember that we have doubled in size of our population and we have a food surplus across the globe. Yes, there are places who don't have food. There are people who don't have food. But there is an excess of food right now in the earth. So much so that in America, they're taking corn, creating ethanol, creating alcohol, and putting it into our gasoline to burn, which is causing food prices to go up. So we have an excess of food in the earth, despite having 8 billion people on the earth. Many people are so afraid that population is going to just override humanity. But the reality is we humanity is barely taking up the, the land mass of the earth. Most of the population is centered in cities. We have a lot of growth that we can have. And when we see declines in growth and collapses of society, like we're seeing in Japan right now, it bodes very bad for society. Here we go. Moving on to number seven. Ehrlich sketched out his most alarmist scenario for the 1970 Earth Day issue of The Progressive, assuring readers that between 1980 and 1989, some 4 billion people, billion people, including 65 million Americans, would die off in the great die-off. That's, I mean, if, if in 1960, there were about 4 billion people, then I'm guessing that by, what, 1980, that's maybe 5.5 billion people. He's guessing that 80%, 80% of the population was going to die in a famine before 1990. This is just, it's just not anywhere close to being reality, folks. Here's number six. It is already too late to avoid mass starvation. <laughs> this is just too funny. It's already too late to avoid mass starvation, declares Dennis Hayes, the chief organizer for Earth Day in the spring of 1970 in the issue of The Living Wilderness. It's too late, folks. Just pack your bags. Just curl up in the fetal position. It's, it's too late for you. It's too late for me. Save yourself. Save yourself. Here's number five. Peter Gunter, a North Texas State University professor, wrote in 1970, demographers agree almost unanimously on the following grim timeline. By 1975, widespread famine will begin in India. These will spread by 1990 to include all of India, Pakistan, China, and the Near East, Africa. By the year 2000, or conceivably sooner, South and Central America will exist under famine conditions. By the year 2000, 30 years from now, the entire world, with the exception of Western Europe, North, Af North America, and Australia, will be in famine. It seems like, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but it seems like these 
scientists, these environmentalists, like to fantasize about the total extinction of mankind. Um, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. Here we go. Number four. Ecologist Kenneth Watt told Time that at the present rate of nitrogen buildup, it's only a matter of time before light will be filtered out of the atmosphere and none of our land will be usable. Okay, remember that chart that we pulled up where we saw that we are actually producing more carbon dioxide? We have more cars now than ever before. We're, we're burning more fuel now than ever before. I, I, I just cannot imagine that the rate of nitrogen actually changed significantly in a decline from the time that Kenneth Watt said this to today. If anything, it's increased. We have to remember we live in a very complex ecosystem that's been around for hundreds of thousands, millions of years. It's been around for a long time. And we have seen over the, all of history that we are in climate change. In fact, the earth used to be much, much hotter than it is now, I believe by 11 degrees centigrade, some scientists think. And we've been through ice ages. Ladies and gentlemen, the temperature across the globe fluctuates. And in the short amount of time that humans have been around to put out any sort of carbon into the atmosphere like in the last 100 years, it is not enough to tip this scale as we will see from uh, some actual scientists, not just me. Here we go. Number three. Paul Ehrlich warned in May 1970 issue of Abudan that DDT and other chlorinated carbons may have substantially reduced the life expectancy of people born since 1945. Ehrlich warned that Americans born before since 1946 now had a life expectancy of only 49 years. And he predicted that if current patterns continued, this expectancy would reach 42 years by 1980, when it might level out. It's important to note that according to the CDC, their most recent report, that life expectancy in the United States is now 78.8 years. 78 years is the average life expectancy for those born in America. And here's he's saying that if things don't change, if we don't if we don't do something, life expectancy will drop to 49 years to even 42 years by 1980. And ladies and gentlemen, the pattern that he was talking about of these carbon emissions, they did continue. They did continue. Here is number two. Ecologist Kenneth Watt declared that by the year 2000, if present trends continue, we will be using up crude oil at such a rate that there won't be any more crude oil. You'll drive up to the pump and say, fill her up, buddy. And he'll say, I'm very sorry, there ain't any. Well, we have more cars. We are burning more fuel today than ever before. And because of it, we have moved billions of people out of poverty. We have given opportunity for billions of people 
to raise the level and the value of their life, the connectivity of the globe, the network effect that cars even provide, that we're able to connect with people on the other side of a city, has changed civilization forever and for the better. If anything, probably the rate of crude from the time he made this prediction increased dramatically. So again, not true. Here, here is the last and final one, and this is quite a shocker. Here we are, number one. Kenneth Watt warned about a pending ice age in a speech, the world has been chilling sharply for 20 years, he declared. If present trends continue, the world will be about four degrees colder for the global mean temperature in 1990, but 11 degrees colder in the year 2000. This is about twice what it would take to put us in an ice age. There it is, folks. I thought it was global warming and climate change all along, but nope, it it started off as there's a coming ice age. There's an impending ice age. So watch out, kids. I don't know which, which one it is. Is it an ice age or is it global warming? And notice they, they moved away from global warming to now climate change because global warming can't actually be substantiated. So now it's just climate change. It's, oh, there's going to be more storms and more of this and more of that and more famines and more, more, more pandemics. So you should probably just give us control. Just give us the keys to your life. You know, just give us a global carbon tax to balance the world. Maybe we should move to a, a global monetary system. And yeah, yeah, this whole election thing, it doesn't seem to be working out very well. So maybe we should just move to, you know, really smart people to be appointed to, to watch over all you underlings, you little earthlings down there. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. All you have to do is give us control because this environmental thing, it's bigger than any one of us. It's bigger than you. It's, it's bigger than me. But together, together, we can solve the problems of climate change. If you give me power and you give me money and you let me control your life and tell you what you can or cannot do and where you can and cannot go and what you can or cannot breathe, who you can and cannot sit next to and how Far you have to be away from them, even if it's your loved one at a funeral or someone, a loved one dying in a hospital. We now have power. We now have control. Well, the good news, the good news for you and I is that this isn't true. We do not have to live in fear. We do not have to give up our dreams and our destinies. We do not have to sacrifice our children on this altar of fear and power grab and manipulation by climate, climate change activists who are seeking political power because that's what it's about. It's about power. It's about control. So here are three clips that I pulled together for the show. The first one is from John Coleman, who was born in 1934 and died in 2018. He was the founder of the Weather Channel, folks. This guy started the Weather Channel. Well, here's what he has to say about climate change. I resent you calling me a denier. That is a, a word meant to put me down. I'm a skeptic about climate change. 
And I want to make it darn clear, Mr. Kenny's not a scientist. I am. He's the CEO of the Weather Channel now. I was the founder of the Weather Channel, not the co-founder. And I'm glad you did, because I am addicted to the Weather Channel. I watch a lot I'm of cable news. Now. Hold on just well, a minute. I'm not done. And CNN has taken a very strong position on global warming that is that it is a consensus. Well, there is no consensus in science. Science isn't a vote. Science is about facts. And if you get down to the hard, cold facts, uh, there's no question about it. Climate change is not happening. There is no significant man-made global warming now. There hasn't been any in the past, and there's no reason to expect any in the future. There's a whole lot of baloney, and yes, it is. it has become a big political point of the Democratic Party and part of their platform, and I regret it's become political instead of scientific, but the science is on my side. I don't think we're going to come to a conclusion about the topic right here. What I do wonder, oh, though, I know is when not, you see... Because you wouldn't the... allow it to happen on CNN, but I'm happy well, that we, I got on the air and got a chance to talk to your, uh, to your viewers. Hello, everybody. What there I do, is no global warming. What I do wonder is when you see the government, when you see NASA, when you see other institutions say that 97% of climate scientists agree... Do you think they're making it up? I, I, what I don't understand is how you well, square that. Well, that's a manipulated that. figure, and let me explain it to you. Uh, the the uh, government puts out about $2.5 billion directly for climate research every year. It only gives that money to scientists who will produce scientific results that support the global warming hypothesis of the Democrat Party position. So they don't have any choice. If you're going to get the money, you've got to support their position. Therefore, 97% of the scientific reports published support global warming. Why? Because those are the ones the government pays for, and that's where the money is. It's real simple. But that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't make it true. That only makes it bought and paid for. The money goes in circles. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, he owned CNN. That felt good. That felt good to my, my spirit there. A, a couple of points on this. He mentioned that, oh, this is just a, a talking point of the Democratic Party. And I know a lot of you listening aren't in America. I'm not in America right now. I'm an American. I don't live in America. And so we might think, oh, whew, dodge that bullet. Well, the problem is it's not just the Democratic Party, but it's the whole globalist worldview that has adopted this agenda as a method to gain global power. Now, it's not just in, hey, let's set up a one-world monetary system. Hey, give power over to me. Hey, the UN is going to step in and tell you what you can and cannot do. Hey, you need to join the Paris Accord. Otherwise, we're going to put sanctions on your nation because you're not trying to get to you know 0% or 0 uh, carbon footprint by, by 2050. Instead, there, there's other ways. Th those are part of it. The reason that this is so appealing to so many of the globalists is that this woke ideology is able to come into developing nations, nations that could be threatening, that could stand up, that could be self-sustaining, that could be independent. And it causes these nations to be dependent and reliant on the powers that be. It actually weakens their society. The reason that it weakens their society is because they're spending more on electricity, they're spending more on energy, and that causes a slower growth within the population, a slower 
development, of economic development and economic strength. So these ideas have drastic consequences on developing nations, which is one reason why many developing nations, and even Poland for that matter, and I'm Polish, so I'm proud proud to be a Polish, Polak, they're saying, you know, we're not going to sacrifice our population, our people, for the sake of this. It's just like with the Rona, the Rona that's going around. What's the, what's the trade-off? What's the cost-benefit ratio? We actually look at the numbers and we see that we are going to lose four more lives because of the things that we implemented to stop something than that thing actually would have had an impact on society. From, from suicide, suicide rates are up across the globe. From, from other health issues that have not been checked because people are too afraid and people aren't allowed to go out. The consequences from policies and decisions that have been made are going to be far more damaging than this virus itself. Far more damaging. The virus didn't do it. It was people's decisions that did it. The consequences of those decisions. Okay, here's the next clip by Ivor Gavier, who was born in 1929. He's a Norwegian-American engineer and physicist who shared a Nobel Prize in physics in 1973. He's smart. He's a smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. Here is Ivor. Decided. But now I think the, the, the people who are alarmists have a very strong position. And so the physical society always have made up their mind, so I don't have to worry about them. But the facts are, that in the last 100 years or so, we have measured the temperature. It has gone up 0.8 degrees, and everything in the world has gotten better. See? So how can they say it's going to get worse? When, when, when we have the evidence that if it's true that they can measure, at least they believe it, when the temperature has gone up 0.8 degrees, everything, we live longer, we have better work, better health, better everything. But if we go, if we go another 0.8 degrees, we're going to... Die, I guess. And I, I don't know if you caught that, but he said, as the globe has warmed, what they say, he in in his in his speeches that I've listened to, he actually rebuts this data point. But he says they claim that the, the globe has warmed 0.8 degrees, and in the time that the Earth has warmed 0.8 degrees, we see better ecosystems, we see better food production. And we see longer life. Now, a lot of that also has to do with increased technology, with us understanding more, with us with development in human understanding, human capabilities, human technology. And that is because we didn't listen to the New York Times editorial that said, conserve, 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 shrink back into your shell. No. Instead, there were entrepreneurs across the globe who said, eh. I'm going to build something to better humanity, to better my neighbor. I'm going to step into my purpose. I'm going to step into my calling. I'm going to step into the meaning of my life. And I'm going to use the resources around me and invest them because I know if I invest them, I will get a return on my investment. This is the way that entrepreneurs think. They say, I have I have $1,000, I have $100, I have $10,000. I'm going to invest it as seed into the ground and it will come back. 
How do governments think? How can we spend this money? And we're going to tax the people again next year, and we're going to spend the money again. We don't need to worry about a return on investment. We need to look about at the, the PR, at the optics of something so I can get back in power again. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we, have to, we have to press forward into our callings, into the reason and the purpose that we are on this earth because other people depend on it. There is something locked inside of you and things that are locked inside of me. It's not for you and it's not for me. It's for people around us. What we do isn't for us, but it's for people around us. But if we let fear, if we let this narrative Make us feel guilty about whenever we produce something, wherever we do something, whenever we have the lights on in our studio. If we let that control us, we will never step out and become who we were meant to be. Here is a last clip from Dr. Michael from the Cato Institute. Patrick Michaels wrote the book, Luke Warming, The New Climate Science That Changes Everything. Here's his clip. Because when the planet warmed, beginning in 1976, the temperature of the stratosphere started to drop. And that's a prediction of greenhouse theory that's not intuitive. You know, the great philosopher of science, Karl Popper, said, if you can meet a difficult prediction with your theory, you can continue to entertain your theory. So the theory is right, but the application of it is wrong. It is nowhere near as warm as it's supposed to be. The computer models are making systematic, dramatic errors over the entire tropics, which is 40% of the Earth, and it's where all our moisture comes from, or almost all of it. Now, let me stop you there. Yeah. Who does these computer models? Governments. There are 32 families of computer models that are used by the United Nations, each government-sponsored, uh, and all of them are predicting far, far too much warming. The disparity between what's been predicted to happen, which looks like this, and what is happening continues to grow. We know that for a fact. Yeah, you can, because you can just look at the weather balloon temperatures. You can look at the satellite temperatures. You can look at something called the reanalysis data. They all behave in concert. So they're showing the same thing. And the same thing is a lot different than this thing. However, one model works. And you know what it is? It's the Russian model. So let me get this. So all the government models are like this. Yeah. The Russian model is like this. Yeah. The Russian model has the least warming in it. And the Russian model is the least warming. And the Russian model pretty much follows reality. Yeah. What's been tested over a few decades. Yeah, correct. You know, you know if we were rational about this. Think about the daily weather forecast. You know, you watch the weather channel. They go, oh, this model says that, that model says that. We think this one's working the best, so we're going to rely on that. Well, for climate forecasts, we should be using the Russian model, but we're not. We use this big spate of all the other models that have this warming in them that's not occurring. Why are all these other government models, 31 of them, I guess, yeah. wrong? And why do they all go in the same direction? Up. Be, because they are what is called parameterized. That's, they're all parameterized. Can I translate parameterized into English? Fudged. Okay. The don't get the right answer, don't know the right answer for certain phenomena. So we essentially 
put in code steps that give us what we think it should be. And the systematic error that was made was the models were tuned, as it said, tuned. Tuned to simulate the warming of the early 20th century. Began in 1910, ended in 1945, about 0.45 degrees Celsius. Mark, that could not have been caused by carbon dioxide. Because there wasn't enough. We had to put enough in. The, The background carbon dioxide concentration is 280 parts per million, when the second first warming started, it was 298 parts per million. If the atmosphere is that sensitive to an 18 ppm change in CO2, we wouldn't be talking about this right, right now, and we'd be sweating bullets. Man, what it's the poor Russians. They always get the they always get the short end of every stick. It seems these days, the poor Russians. But at the end, he was saying that all of these models. That people are literally losing sleep over, having depression and anxiety over. They're from something that was calibrated, looking at the data from 1910 to 1945. And I don't even, did they even have a thermometer back? Did they even have thermometers back in 1910? Anyway, and they looked at the parts per million of carbon from then, which was, as you said, 280 parts per million. And by 1945, that increased to 298 parts per million. Now, he's saying that that's an 18 parts per million rise. And with that, we saw a 0.45 degree Celsius rise in temperature. So the model would then say, well, we've put, we've put out, I don't know, another 30, 40, 50 parts per million into the atmosphere. We should have drastic, drastic warming across the globe, but it's not. And his argument is that what happened between 1910 and 1945, it couldn't have possibly been because of carbon that the small portion of the globe was probably what, 2 billion, 3 billion people were putting into the atmosphere. I mean, think if in 1960, we were putting about 10 kilotons of carbon into the atmosphere, and now we're putting 35 kilotons of carbon into the atmosphere. How little were we putting back in 1910 when there was 12 cars on the road? Or 1945 when, you know, we just we just figured out airplanes and tanks for war. It was barely. We didn't have global travel back then. So his point is, it, it couldn't have possibly been man-made Carbon being spewed into the atmosphere from 1910 to 1945 to cause that rise in temperature. It was something else in the ecosystem, in the system that we live in that's highly complex. And the little bit of carbon that was put out during that time could not have possibly swung the balance. So cheap electricity, ladies and gentlemen, it has given women freedom to leave the house and get jobs because now they're able to have machines, electric appliances that free up time from domestic chores. Kids can get out of menial labor and can go to school. We have indoor lighting that's safe that we can read at night. All these things were made possible by cheap electricity. The expansion of our food production, the refrigerator is all made possible by cheap electricity. And that cheap electricity has caused us to develop new technology. And if we grow up 
demonizing and despising the gifts that we've been given, the privilege that we live in, and we want to go back to nature. You, you go back to nature and you can see it. You can go to places across the world and see what living back in nature looks like, where you're cooking over an open fire. And because of that, you're getting diseases and parasites from burning dung and wood in your house. You can see that the life expectancy was much shorter because you're fighting against nature. You don't have the, the, the structures in place for clean water to fight against nature. So if you want to fight for humanity, we are fighting to put our dominion, to control, to bring nature into the bounds of society so that we can have a thriving ecosystem where plants aren't going extinct, where animals aren't going extinct. Yeah, well, let's, let's preserve nature. But I don't want to go back to it. I don't think you really want to go back to it either. We're going to be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Before we get to our Weaver and Loom segment, I want to encourage you to have a conversation about this with your friends, families, and coworkers, your associates. This, this will and could open up their minds to critical thinking. It could open up their minds to their own possibility, to the things that they're called to do. I mean, you might have friends who are struggling with anxiety and self-hatred for being a human, for being the virus on the earth. So share this with a friend. Have a conversation with a friend. Say, sit down and talk to them and dialogue around this. As you do, your learning will grow. And, and it's we're not just here to gather knowledge. We're here to apply that knowledge into our lives because it's the application, the application of knowledge, which is wisdom. That's the thing that changes our life. We need to be connected back to that action. And that's what we talk about right here on the show and specifically in our Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. This picture of a weaver at its loom, it often represents fate. It represents our life work, that weaving of that tapestry from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. With that, when we are caught, cut off from the loom, we are cut off from action and we have all this knowledge and that's what's happening in most of society. We're gathering all this knowledge, but we are cut off from action. We are cut off from our work and we need to be called back into our work because that's the place that purpose and meaning and explodes in our life. That is the place. So today's quote is, is one of my favorites by one of my favorites. From the Art of War, Sun Tzu. He writes, all warfare is based on deception. All warfare is based on deception. And what deception have we been talking about today? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Climate change. It's deception. And it's warfare. If they can make you believe this absurdity, if they can make you believe that you are a parasite on the earth and it would be better if you were not here. It would be better if your children were not here. It would be better if you only had one kid 
It would be better if you had no kids. If they can make you believe that, then they can make you believe anything. Because you will give over your rights. You will give over your life. You will give over your purpose. You will give over your livelihood to the man, to the machine, to the government, to the powers that be, the powers that want to control your life for their own gain, to shape society into their, their own image. Don't believe it. Don't fall for it. And it's, it's deception. And the way that deception works, anytime there's a storm, anytime there's snow, anytime anything happens, all you have to do is like, well, it sounds like it's from climate change. Oh, the Rona. The, the Rona, ladies and gentlemen, that's, prob that's climate change. Ah, it's from climate change. It's because of climate change, we're going to see more Ronas popping up. Oh, cyber warfare. It's probably because people are upset somewhere else in the world, and that's climate change. You know, everything, the, every road leads back to climate change. It's deception. And the way that it works, you just tack it on to any sentence. And it fits. You're like, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is climate change. But we got to wake up. We got to wake up. Now, you might be saying, well, Lucas, come on. This seems like an awfully one-sided conversation. Where's all the other data points? Well, you, you've, you have all the other data points every day of your life. You've been bombarded with it. This is to break up those data points and cause you to at least consider the other side. At least consider what are the ramifications of both sides. For your life, for your children, what that means. Now, the, the other argument is, well, Lucas, well, L L Lucas, you sound like a climate denier, a climate change denier. N notice, any time someone's sticking on the word denier or phobia on something, it's, it is to undermine someone's legitimate argument. So, sure, undermine a legitimate argument, but realize that that is a tactic to make you, one, not want to believe any of this stuff, not want to share any of this stuff because you don't want your friends calling you a climate change denier. I mean, that's so horrible. That's horrible. You don't want to be a phobic of some sort. What, you know, whatever phobia you've heard been thrown around in your community, you don't want to be one of those people. So no notice this language that is being used to control, manipulate, and deceive us into not thinking critically because we will shut down our critical thinking because of fear of what other people think. The last point is actually I do believe that the entire creation, all of earth is yearning and groaning, yearning for what? For the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. That's you. All of creation is yearning for you to stand up into your purpose, into your identity, and to transform nature and society into something beautiful and noble and just and righteous and worthy. So if, if you are a, a Muslim right now who's fasting during Ramadan, or if you're a Christian and you're not, think about that. Think about and ask and seek. If you're an atheist right now, hey, what is your purpose that you can step into? Why were you put here? Maybe you don't believe you were put here, but I believe you were put here. Why were you put here? What is your calling? What were you designed to do with your life? And 
What were you designed to design in the world, to create in the world, to transform the world and society into something greater, into something that blesses other people, into something that gives life and life abundantly to everyone around it. There was a quote the other day that said, <laughs> a friend shared with me, he said that something to the effect that no one's going to open any doors for you. You're the one that has to build the door and then bust through it. And I responded, the best door that you and I can build is by building a door for someone else so that they can bust through it. That's the way to success, transforming your micro communities, your life, your family, and then your, the sphere around you. That you might stand up and become a person that stands other people up around you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for being here with me today. I always appreciate it. If you have any questions, you can find me on Telegram, which is uh, Lucas J. Scrobot on Telegram, or you can WhatsApp me at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and I look forward to hearing from you. Remember, you are someone who goes out and pursues and seeks the truth to uncover your purpose that you might own the future.